so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, hello there and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Oh, we've got some great stuff to cover here. And who knows, maybe we'll all be a little bit wiser at the end of it. I'll tell you this. I, I try to approach such things just because we live in really volatile times. Don't know if you'd noticed, but but we do. And I try to approach these things with the understanding that uh, it's better to know who you are and what you stand for than to simply be certain, absolutely certain, you know, as to who or what you're against. I'm talking about that fear and enemy-driven thinking that uh, unfortunately powers so much of the discourse going on around us. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it's uh, it's getting it's getting kind of rough out there. So in today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about um, out of all the things that are dividing us, it really comes down to only one difference that really matters. And that is the difference between do you support coercion or do you support persuasion? I know there are people who will say, no, this can't possibly be true. Come on, there are left and right and Democrat and Republican, conservative, <laughs> liberal. You get the picture. But most of those are labels. And if you really want to get down to to where the rubber meets the road, it's a matter of the individual versus the collective. And as an individual, it's pretty easy to understand. You don't have the right to go around forcing people to do whatever you think is right. But when we get into a collective situation, somehow that, uh, that sense of restraint of forcing people and coercing people to do things goes away. Well, if this is what the crowd wants, then this is what the crowd should get. And the problem is people don't understand that functionally, that's the very same dynamic that drives a lynch mob. We don't care about the consequences. We just want to get what we want to get. So a lot of injustice can happen when the mob or the the crowd, the majority, simply is accustomed to, well, there's enough of us. There's 50% plus one. So therefore, we ought to get exactly what we want. There's a great article from Brandon Smith that does a fantastic job of explaining how leftists support tyranny and conservatives do not. And I don't want you to get hung up on the labels. I kind of have to watch myself here. But he makes some very, very good points. So if you hear people say, and I'm one of them who says, really, there is no difference between the political parties. That's not true at every level, though. You know, you get to the very top of the pyramid and yeah it's it's you know there is no difference the 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 folks in congress for the most part with just a tiny handful of exceptions are all cronies and they're all about 
sucking up those taxpayer dollars and doing whatever they darn well please without any thought whatsoever as to whether or not what they're doing is legitimate. Well, you know, we're Congress. Don't you know who we are? (laughs) Don't you know? We say something, you're supposed to say yes, sir, and get right to it. Here's how here's how Brandon Smith defines it. And he actually has a pretty powerful recommendation. So you probably should be sitting down for this or at the very least, you know, take your blood pressure medication. (laughs) This might push a couple of hot buttons. Brandon Smith says one of the great semantic debates of the past decade has been the ongoing attempt to muddle the definition of left versus right in the American political sphere. For example, a lot of people who are new to the liberty movement, people who became active during or after the Trump campaign in 2016, they've heard of the false left-right paradigm, but they have no clue what it actually means. And here he warns, if you think that that means that there are no legitimate political sides in this fight and that the entire conflict is theatrical or manipulated, then he says you are misinformed. The false left-right paradigm specifically refers to the fake division at the very top of the political pyramid among elitists in government. Now, there are certainly Republicans that are conservative in their rhetoric, but not conservative in their actions or policies, and they tend to support or side with politicians on the left regularly when it comes to big government spending and big government power. Just look to the Republicans that voted in favor of Joe Biden's recent infrastructure bill. Democrats and leftists don't have to pretend. Brandon Smith says they base their entire platform on collectivism and centralization. This is no secret. The only theater is in their motives. Top Democrats claim they are fighting for the greater good of the masses when actually they're elevating and benefiting a tiny minority of wealthy elites. They don't care at all about the lives of their constituents. That's probably a good thing to keep in mind especially around election time, no matter how that politician standing before you is talking. The truth of the matter is you really don't have friends in Washington, D.C. Now, Brandon Smith says things change dramatically, though, when we start talking about the bottom of the pyramid among regular people. The political spectrum is not as broad and nuanced as some people would have us believe, and the sides are much easier to discern. There are exceptions to every rule and to every group, but to say the groups do not exist, he says that's an act of denial. And there are also people who call themselves moderates because they think this makes them more impartial and more open-minded. They don't want to appear as if they're moving to one extreme end of the spectrum or the other. But ultimately, there are only two sides in this fight. And this, this is the difference right here. Either you are in favor of intensive government dominance of people's lives or you are not. And the vast majority of people in favor of government tyranny herald from the left side of the political spectrum. They revel in the totalitarianism, even when they don't necessarily benefit from it. Yes, he says, it's time to stop pretending as if there's a gray area here and call the situation as it really is. The political left is obsessed with control over how people live, act, and even how they think. Issues like critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, big tech censorship, the COVID lockdowns and vax mandates have really clarified things to the point that if you can't see the enormous difference between leftists and conservatives, well, he says, then you're being willfully ignorant. Brandon Smith says, in my latest articles, I've been exploring the theme of the political left and their habit of wearing masks to hide their true natures. Many of them will support socialist, collectivist and globalist policies while also claiming they support freedom at the same time. 
Yet when they're faced with actually facing real world problems in terms or just real world decisions, rather, in terms of unilateral authoritarianism, the true character of the average leftist is revealed. And it's an ugly thing to behold. He says, let's just use the COVID and vaccine mandates as one litmus test for a moment. Poll after poll after poll indicates that an overwhelming number of Democrats, around 80 percent, applaud the mandates and continue to defend them even after almost two years of failures and lack of scientific honesty. So for these people in the COVID, for these people, rather, the COVID controls are purely political and they often argue in favor of their uh, argue in their favor, rather, as a vehicle to attack conservatives rather than saving lives. Now, this fact is without uh, the fact is without their enthusiastic support, the draconian mandates would not exist in the U.S. Now, some people will point out, well, the polls also show that around a quarter of Republicans support some form of vax mandates. But here's the difference. He says Republicans and conservatives are actually willing to engage in honest debate over the scientific and social merits of the mandates. The vast majority of Democrats and leftists are absolutely not interested. They view any opposition as an act of treason and any debate as thought crime committed by cranks and conspiracy theorists. Now, that's a rather convenient tactic to take because leftists will never actually have to defend their own assumptions and beliefs in a public forum on fair ground. They can simply say, well, all the evidence that's being presented is meaningless because it's being presented by treasonous enemies. Everything they do, no matter how destructive or oppressive, is thus justified by the assertion that conservatives represent an insurgency against democracy rather than honest Americans with honest concerns. And he says it should also be noted that the minimal Republican support for the mandates has been steadily dropping as new information is released, which contradicts the mainstream narrative on vaccine effectiveness. And as Joe Biden continues to use the vaccines as a means to gain power over private businesses. Yet support among Democrats is as high as ever. Now, Brandon Smith says in the past few years, I've seen leftists en masse defend the indoctrination of American children with critical race theory. Which teaches white kids that they are all inherently evil oppressors and black and brown kids that they are all perpetual victims that cannot help themselves. When they get called out, leftists then claim that CRT doesn't exist or does not represent what conservatives say it represents. But all you have to do is read their own books to see that this is a lie. He says, if you're willing to slog through the insanity of the book Critical Race Theory, the key writings that formed the movement, you will see that everything conservatives warn about when it comes to CRT is true. Now, the book is edited by Kimberly Crenshaw, widely reviewed, widely viewed rather, as co-founder of Critical Race Theory and Intersectionality. It's also a book that you'll see used as a teaching aid in most social science classes, classes in most colleges. He says, I've seen leftists support BLM riots and the destruction of private property across the nation while calling them peaceful protests. I've also seen BLM take hundreds of millions of dollars from the very corporations and globalist institutions they claim they hate. He says, I've seen leftists defend big tech censorship of any person or group that disagrees with the woke narrative, 
to the point that conservatives now have to constantly self-edit keywords and phrases just so algorithms do not automatically derail their accounts. And so leftists can't false flag their commentaries as hate speech or medical misinformation. He says, I've seen leftists avidly support COVID lockdowns and the arbitrary destruction of hundreds of thousands of businesses as non-essential. I've seen them aggressively defend mask mandates, despite the fact that red states which removed mask mandates had the same infection rates or even lower rates. Now, he says, I'm witnessing their fevered joy as they help push enforced environmental vac- or, I'm sorry, experimental vaccination through federal and state mandates, using the threat of joblessness to intimidate those who do not comply. In the meantime, we've seen conservatives become the overwhelming majority of people in direct opposition to all of these totalitarian activities. And still today, I continue to see people try to argue that there are no sides and that conservatives are just as bad as leftists. These people either do not understand what a conservative is, or they are deliberately misrepresenting reality because they have an agenda. So one of the points he makes here is that the bottom line is the proof that you can see in action. Red states are generally free. Blue states are generally enslaved. There's no way around that. The debate is over, at least in terms of left versus right. The differences are stark and painfully obvious. Places with majority conservative populations are still fighting the mandates, while places with a majority of leftists are perpetuating tyranny. It cannot be denied. It cannot be argued. This is reality. In this day and age, if you want to be free, you make sure you are surrounded by conservatives or you become a conservative. Brandon Smith says there is not a single blue state in the country that is not on the war path to enforce Biden's vax mandates. And there's not a single blue city in the country that's not trying to subversively teach CRT in schools. And there's not a single blue region in the country that's not obsessed with wokeism and globalism. The truth is, America has split into two completely different cultures with two completely different social objectives. Now, to be sure, there are some nuances in terms of geography. Blue states, for example, are often checkered with red counties that do not like the policies of the state government. But this doesn't change the reality of the overall political divide. He says, I've also noted that most Europeans and people in the UK and Australia have no concept at all of what a conservative actually is. They think a conservative is a corporatist. They've been indoctrinated by their predominantly socialist and leftist systems to treat conservative as a four-letter word. The people in these nations that oppose these, the leftist agenda will commonly refer to themselves as traditional liberals, but it really, he says, they're just conservatives that are afraid to call themselves conservatives. Now, he says, I'm speaking specifically on the American dynamic, however, and in this country, the two sides are sharply defined. He says, I think that there's also a subsection of the population that doesn't want to admit a separation of the U.S. is in progress, even though it is a fact. They want to believe the false left-right paradigm applies to the regular population because they don't want to accept the inevitability of the breakup of our country. (gasps) He went there. Oh, man. They want to believe that if we just deal with the elites at the top of the pyramid, that the division at the bottom will simply disappear. Brandon Brandon Smith says that's naive to think. 
He says there are principles and ideals which are mutually exclusive. They cannot exist within the same society at the same time. There are moments in history when tribes form and cults rise, and generally these groups grow from either a desire to control others or a desire to remain free. And we are living in such times. The political left, according to every metric and statistic, is an antithesis to conservative principles of small government, decentralization, personal liberty, free markets, family values, etc. Now, this does not mean all conservatives agree on every aspect of society. We don't all share the same religious fervor or adherence to the same denomination. We don't all have the same ideas on what constitutes merit. And the things we value in terms of character traits and life choices vary. We definitely don't all agree on solutions to the problems and enemies we face every day. Which is why organizing resistance to the mandates has taken so much time and energy. But that said, we all agree that the leftist agenda is poison and that it's not something we can continue to live with. He says, I've heard it argued that if the U.S. is broken into two parts, this will weaken us to threats from the outside. Now, most conservatives don't like to accept notions of secession or the left-right paradigm because they fear foreign aggression from places like China, for instance. But he says, I would point out that this thinking lacks a sense of priority. We have to deal with the leftists, socialists, and communists in our own house first before we can deal with the communists on the other side of the world. Now, keeping this defunct marriage between leftist culture and conservative culture going just for the sake of appearances is the most destructive policy we can have in the long run. So Brandon Smith says, my thinking is this. If we break up, there are two possible results. We go our own separate ways peacefully, and the conservative states will continue to succeed economically and socially because we will have freedom. Well, leftist states will continue to sink into debt and continue to bleed citizens due to oppression. Or, we separate and the leftists try to stop us using force, and we go to war. And he says, make no mistake, they will ultimately lose such a war. So Brandon Smith says, the latter is not the most pleasant option, but in either case, freedom remains in the world. And he says, it's time to stop treating separation and division as integrally bad. Sometimes it is healthy and necessary. The old phrase, divide and conquer, is a misnomer for our particular situation. Often nations and cultures are conquered from within because they refuse to separate from the riffraff and define their moral boundaries. So the right to divide is actually one of the most powerful forms of liberty there is. And it's one of the greatest protections against the leftist authoritarian movements in our midst. I know that uh, that may rock you. Maybe that uh, took you by surprise. Did that come out of nowhere? Hey, where's it talking about secession? How can he even do such a thing? I do hope that, uh, you know, you at least give it some consideration. Because I, I am very concerned that we are rapidly approaching the point where we're going to see some very serious consequences like balkanization type consequences. And as I think back to, I think it was in the late 1990s, I remember a columnist by the name of Charlie Reese, who used to write for the Orlando Sentinel, saying the time you need to be very, very concerned is when people stop talking to each other. In other words, when they look at each other with such 
disdain and such derision, in fact, contempt, I think is the way Arthur C. Brooks puts it, our contempt culture. These people aren't just reprehensible, they're less than human. Then the only thing left to do is fight. And despite what we may think about, well, you know, if it's going to be a fight, bring it on, man. Well, whip them and be home in time for dinner. Yeah, that, uh, that was kind of the thinking before under a certain president by the name of Abraham Lincoln and his war of involuntary union. He felt like, you know what, the union's going to whip these uh, rebel states into shape and bring them back home and we're going to, you know, put them right. And, and that's going to be that. But that's not how it shook out. Four long years, 600,000 lives later, and and innumerable lives destroyed. Yeah, it uh, and it's still, there's still problems today. Else why would we be taking down statues of Robert E. Lee and so forth? I mean, it's a question that's settled by violence is never really settled. So if you start hitting me, over the head because you tell me the sky is green and I'm like, no, it's blue. Whack. Oh, I mean, ow, you know, I may, I may finally say, okay, okay, okay. It's green. But the fact of the matter is, well, we haven't really settled the matter. It's just, I decided I wanted to stop being hit. And so I said it. When I look at the sky, my eyes are still telling me, bro, that's blue. (laughs) That is not, that is not green in the least. So I think the most important thing that a person can do at this point is know very clearly who you are and where you stand. Now, hopefully that doesn't come off as militant. I guess to some people that may sound like, my gosh, what kind of language is that? Why don't you just go out there and pour gas on the fire? But a person who knows where they stand, and I mean really understands, look, this, these are the moral boundaries that define my life or define my outlook on the world isn't as likely to have to feel like they have to prove something to everybody else. Truth be told, the people who get angriest and the people who want to to lash out, in fact, the ones who puff up and kind of get into that guerrilla mode of dominance, are typically the people who don't know exactly what they stand for or who question whether they actually know what they stand for at all. they, They don't know and that makes them dogmatic about what little they do know. And on the other hand, and this is the kind of person that I would encourage you, and this is the kind of person that I try to aspire to be, people who are very clear on who they are and what they stand for don't have to prove it. They don't have that need to, to show people, to, to own the libtards, and to, you know, to make everybody you know, bend to their will and admit, I'm right, huh? You know why you don't have to do that? It's because you've already won the toughest battle. Which is with yourself. And being able to sort truth from error. I promise you, the time you put into becoming the kind of person who can correctly sift truth from error, fact from fiction, and who knows what you stand for, this doesn't mean, by the way, your mind slams shut the second you decide. It just means that at a certain point, after you've studied out an issue long enough, you're okay with committing to the truth of something. But you're always open for more information that could add to that truth and add to that understanding. But again, you'll find the people who have reached this point where they really know what they stand for, 
They're not the ones out there running off at the mouth. They're not freaking out and, you know, having an Alex Jones type meltdown over what's going on. In fact, the word I would use to describe them is there's a certain steadiness about them. Not cocky, but just steady. Because they've already proven out the things that needed to be proved. And whether somebody else agrees with them or not, they know where they stand. It's not threatening to encounter something that contradicts what you believe. In fact, the more a person really knows where they stand, the more likely they are to entertain thoughts that challenge what they believe. It's not a big deal. So here's my recommendation to you. It is to be more sure of who you are and where you stand and less concerned with beating everybody into submission with, uh, you know, what you think. I'm not going to pretend it's easy, but I am going to tell you it's definitely worth it. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is the McCullough Report. Are you tired of being tired? Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cells REM Sleep Supplement. These are pill-free supplements in a gel pack. They're so easy to take before you go to bed. I'm so tired during the day now, working so hard, but restless at the same time. I'm going to take a healthy cell before sleep tonight so I can restore my REM sleep and wake up refreshed. Now go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any product. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. 
You know, if you find value from programs like this one, I mean, if it uh, if it causes you to think a little more clearly about the world around you or to reflect that, yes, some things are worth sticking your neck out and standing up for, then I would encourage you, pay attention to the sponsors and, and do your best to support them with your patronage or to refer friends or family. You know, if it's something you don't need at the moment, it would be really good to just uh, refer others. Let these sponsors know that their message is reaching your ears so that they can continue their good work of making shows and networks like this possible. So, where to go next? I know there's been a lot of focus on Kyle Rittenhouse, and uh, as as I am as I'm doing this, I, I'm not sure what the jury is is going to find. The jury, last I checked, was receiving instructions, and um, there, there's a lesson though that I, I want to step outside of the trial and all the intrigue of you know what really happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, and instead, focus a little bit on the decision to take the witness stand on the part of Kyle Rittenhouse. And, you know, it's, it's led to a bunch of different memes out there. You know, the, the uh, folks on the left are mocking, look at those crocodile tears, look at him breaking down, that's not the face of an innocent man. And Okay, you have to expect that kind of thing. It's a very polarizing kind of trial. However... The prospect of getting up on the stand in a court case, particularly one where you are being charged with murder and very well could go to prison for the rest of your life if the jury finds you guilty. Those are pretty high stakes. So I wanted to share with you a commentary from Annie uh, Holmquist from Intellectual Takeout. Very thoughtful thing here and It gives me more respect for Kyle Rittenhouse, and this has nothing to do with the events of August 25th, 2020, but more for his desire to be able to tell his side of what happened. In other words, to to speak the truth in his own defense, and it's, it's a very risky thing to do in a murder trial. So Annie Holmquist says, I've watched the Kyle Rittenhouse court proceedings with interest, and not only because they're a microcosm of the cultural struggle over basic constitutional rights, but because they've turned into a fascinating legal drama. Who needs television shows like Law & Order when you have a judge continually hauling the prosecution to the woodshed for multiple instances of stepping over the accepted legal line? Now, one of the most intense moments of the trial, however, was Rittenhouse's decision to take the witness stand. In doing so, he waived his Fifth Amendment right to not be compelled to be a witness against himself. Doing this is quite rare. And she notes, as, as various other commentators noted, it often will snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. So Annie Holmquist says, the fact that Rittenhouse chose to testify in his own trial shows that he and his defense team were either stupid or strongly convinced of the truth and soundness of their case. And she says, I tend to think it's the latter. Rittenhouse, as you will recall, was present during the August 2020 riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which erupted following the police shooting of Jacob Blake, who came after officers with a knife. The 17-year-old Rittenhouse helped clean up the city from rioting damage and offered his services to help protect the city. He later shot three people during another night of riots, allegedly in self-defense, killing two and wounding one. Rittenhouse began sobbing as he described that fatal night to the jury. In fact, many people noted that he was exhibiting all the classic signs of post-traumatic stress disorder during his recall, while others claimed that his gasping sobs were simply crocodile tears attempting to sway the jury his way. If the sobs were genuine, 
it's likely that Rittenhouse was regretting his decision to testify at that point. So why did he? Well, author and former Time magazine editor Whitaker Chambers shed some light on the issue. Chambers was once an American spy for the communists. Roughly a decade after he left the Communist Party, the much maligned Chambers testified in the high-profile Alger Hiss case about the communist infiltration in the American government. In his memoir, Witness, Chambers recounts why he endured the difficulties of testifying. These are his words, quote, For I had begun to understand that to be a witness, in the sense in which I am using the term, means ultimately just one thing. It means that a man is prepared to destroy himself, if necessary, to make his witness. A man does not wish to destroy himself. To the full degree in which he is strongest, that is to say, to the full degree of the force that makes it possible for him to bear witness at all, he desires not to destroy himself. To the degree that he is most human, that is to say, most weak, he shrinks from destroying himself. But to the degree that he is, that what he truly is and what he stands for are one, he must at some point tacitly consent in his own mind to destroy himself if that is necessary. And in part, that tacit consent is a simple necessity of the struggle. It is the witness's margin of maneuver. In no other way can he strip his soul of that dragging humanity, that impeding love of life and its endearments, which must otherwise entangle him at every step and distract him, at last, to failure. This is the point at which the witness is, al- is always most alone. End quote. Look, I've never had to sit on the witness stand in a trial. Not for myself or anybody else. I count myself pretty fortunate in that regard. And maybe if you have had to, to fill that role, you can understand a little bit about what it must have been like for Kyle Rittenhouse to go to the witness stand and, and to to speak on his case. Annie Holmquist asks here, is this factor that, uh, that Whitaker Chambers mentions the same thing that's at work in the Rittenhouse case? Because like Chambers, Kyle Rittenhouse likely knew the risks of testifying, that he could destroy himself by doing so. But what if he, like Chambers, was so convinced of the truth of his case and his need to stand for right that he was willing to destroy himself, if necessary, in order to make that truth known. Now she says, I can't know whether this was Kyle Rittenhouse's thought process in deciding to testify, nor can I tell what the outcome of his testimony will be in this trial. But she says, regardless, the idea of being a witness, of standing and speaking the truth of what we believe, no matter the cost, should inspire each of us. Now, she points out the lines of good and evil are fast being drawn in our current society. And those who stand for truth and light will likely suffer for that stance. So the question is, do you have the stamina and courage to stop shrinking from potential destruction, whether through cancellation or imprisonment or loss of wealth, in order to be a witness for that truth? I thought that was worth sharing just because it's it's a little bit different angle. I mean, look, there's everybody's got a take on, well, here's what's going on with the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse trial. But this one put it into some terms that I really hadn't considered before. 
And just for the record, I guess I'll just go ahead and put my cards on the table and tell you. Um, I don't think Kyle Rittenhouse was in the wrong. I don't think he was wrong for being there in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I don't think he was wrong for being armed in a riot zone. I don't think he was wrong in defending himself against three, maybe four different aggressors who by their lethally aggressive behavior deserved to be shot. I'm not saying that as a celebration, by the way. I'm, in fact, let me, let me take a little side road here for just a second. As much as I would like to see Kyle Rittenhouse acquitted, I don't believe that uh, the, the prospect of killing another person should ever be cause for celebration. High fives and, you know, chest bumps and cheering and buying me a beer, you know, for, for my troubles. It just seems inappropriate, even if the person was just, for instance, just hypothetically, a violent felon, maybe even the worst of the felons, a convicted pedophile who was raging after him and threatening to kill him from the moment he laid eyes on him. Just hypothetically, of course. It's still a tragedy when a human is crushed by the enormity of their own consequences, their own bad decisions. I think God weeps to see that happen. And I'm not denying that there, there are times where sometimes to defend innocent life, you know, good people have to be capable of defending it, even to bloodshed. This is why when you hear people talk about, you know, there's comfort in having skill at arms. It's not because you're out there looking to become Rambo and you're looking to go out there and, and you know, take on the world and right all the wrongs and find monsters where maybe there aren't even some to be found. It's the acknowledgement that, yeah, there are some people who, by their lethally aggressive behavior, pose a threat to innocent life. And thank heavens for the people of principle who are able to stop them. But again, it's a regrettable last resort. It's not cause for celebration. And I'm sorry, if, I, if it sounds like I'm scolding you, I don't, I don't mean to be wagging my finger in your face. But I'm just asking you to consider, what is the mindset of people who delight in the suffering of other people or the anguish of the, the other people's families? The individuals who attacked Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, they had families who are rightly grieving at the loss of their loved one. And it doesn't make the actions of their loved ones in attacking Kyle Rittenhouse righteous. But I'm asking you, how does it help to, people, to see people celebrating the death of your loved one? See, to me, it doesn't. And in fact, I, I think the kind of people who rejoice in others' sorrow and suffering are probably motivated by more demonic dynamics than, than most would be willing to admit. Don't be that person. We don't need more angry, gleeful, laughing little demons, you know, who celebrate death and destruction. What we need right now are people who are bringers of light. And to be a bringer of light, that means you've got to be pretty secure on what your principles are. Not only knowing them, but actually living them. And I know it's a tall order. And some people will say, well, you know, you can't, uh, you can't fight. You know, the left is going to fight uh, unfairly. 
All I know is the higher the goal that you're shooting for. And if the goal that you're, that you're aiming at is, you know, to, to secure the blessings of liberty, to defend innocent life, you've got to be willing to use the highest possible methods to get there. If you stoop to the, the evil that your enemy is willing to commit, you're going to become the very thing that you pretend to be defending against. I'll try not to twist the knife as I say this, but uh, this, this is what the uh, United States uh, security state, our national security state, has become. That's the deal with the devil that the American people accepted following World War II. Our political officials looked at what uh, the communists were doing, you know, in the Soviets and, and uh, even at what, uh, what the Nazis had been up to. And they said, wow, these people are doing some really horrific things. But in order to protect our country and in order to, to make sure the American people can sleep well at night, we will create black programs, meaning off the books programs, that will use the same kinds of tactics. Interfering with elections, assassinations, and leading coups here and there to to shift power and to interfere with the way nations operate. But for the sake of your conscience, American citizen, we'll do it behind the scenes. And in fact, you don't really want to know what we're doing, so we're going to cloak it all in secrecy, top secrecy. And you don't have to worry about it. All you have to do is just trust us. What we're doing is there to help you. And that's how they're going to leave it. But now look at where it's got us. Where our own government's uh, national security state apparatus is being focused in on us. Particularly if you're a person who stands up for freedom. If you're a person who says, man, I don't agree with what's going on. Well, then, that sounds like something a domestic terrorist would say. I'm not just talking about, you know, the the January 6th protesters who are rightly concerned and angry about to the questions over an election that we were told absolutely the most the most above board, transparent and honest election in history. Yeah, we never really got a chance to hash that out in court, did we? Seems like the majority of those cases were dismissed on this technicality or that technicality. And you're not even allowed to ask the questions that remain. Why is that? What, what about this inconsistency? So, yeah, I understand why people were upset. I don't condone, you know, vandalism of property. I don't condone, you know, getting out of control at the Capitol. Of course, I don't, control, I don't condone the idea that uh, that was an insurrection. Boy, they were trying to overthrow the government. That's a bunch of political melodrama. If they're still spouting it next year, I hope to put some of it on my garden. It should do great for helping my plants grow. But it is crap, pure and simple. So, that's, that's my take. You're free to reject it. It's worth exactly what you paid for it. But I'm just, I'm just saying, if you're serious about moving the cause of liberty, it's going to take something more than anger or the, the willingness to delight in somebody else's misfortune or, or tragedy, even if they brought it on themselves. I don't think freedom can be moved forward by people who are motivated by those baser instincts. I think what moves the cause of freedom is people who very clearly understand the principles and practices of liberty, 
well enough that they are willing to live those principles even when it's tough, speak the truth, even when it's dangerous. And I'm specifically thinking about the people who are looking to lose their jobs because they will not take the jab. I mean, I want to believe that more people see this incredible false choice that's been placed before us. But then I wonder, because a lot of people seem to be going along with it. Well, if we just comply, if we just, if we just do what they tell us, they'll give us back our freedoms. How can that be so hard to understand? And yet from my vantage point, it's like, no, the more you comply, the more they will take from you because they know you are waiting for permission to live as a free man or woman. Truth is not something that's given to you by somebody in authority. Freedom is not granted by whoever happens to be in power at the moment. You want to be a free individual? Stand up and start acting like one. And if that causes a little disconnect and you're like, well, I'm not really sure what a free person is supposed to act like. Well, then you got some homework to do. There's no big deal. There's no shame in, in not understanding it. It's not like it was taught to you in the public school system, which the majority of us have been through. It's the kind of thing you have to be willing to pay the price to understand yourself. But here's the advantage of doing that. You're not running on borrowed light. You are not beholden to somebody who's so much wiser and, and more seasoned than you to tell you how it all works. Once you have done the work, and it is work, of really understanding not just why things work, but how things work. How do the principles of, and practices of liberty apply? You become a steady rock. No matter where the current of the mainstream may be going at the moment, no matter how many people it's carrying along with it, you know what you're about. And it's good from a couple of standpoints. Number one, uh, you knowing what you're about is is powerful because it gives you the power to, to reclaim your life. No, you're not going to get it perfect, okay? You're not going to have absolute 100% freedom. There's no place left on earth where that exists. But first and foremost, it starts as a state of mind. That's what we're shooting for. And here's the second benefit. There are so many people around you. You don't even know. How many people around you are looking for someone who can lead out by example? You're not setting yourself up to be a guru or some kind of an icon that they're going to fall around and worship. But you'd be shocked at how many people resonate with an example. I may have shared this before. I'll share this just one last time, just as a small example of how it works, because it, it works at the tiniest level, and it works on a bigger level, too. Back when masking was a big, big issue, and it, it still is in some places, but when, when the mask mandates were going out everywhere, I was living in Utah at the time, and, and uh, you know, there's a pretty conservative slant to the part of Utah where I was living. But the mask mandates were still being enforced, and they were being, you know, ruthlessly pushed by people who felt like this is the best way to do things. And if you went to the store without a mask, there was a pretty good chance you were going to be confronted. Now, this isn't one of the major population areas of Utah along the Wasatch Front. So it uh, it kind of is to be expected. You you just you have more people who are into that whole 
coercion versus persuasion mindset. But my boys and I went to the local Cal Ranch store, the farm and ranch store, and I think my son was looking for some shirts or a hat or something like that. I just went along for fun. We walked in, and of course, there's signs on the door, masks are required, we are under a mask mandate. And I noticed the employees were wearing masks, but I looked around and I went, yeah, I'm not seeing anybody else in the store. It wasn't super crowded, but I didn't see any other masks, so I just left mine in my pocket And uh, we went on about our business. We went and did our shopping. As we came back and were paying for our goods, I watched a young man come walking in from the parking lot. He was pulling his mask out of his pocket and starting to bring it up to his face. And he stopped in the doorway and looked, saw me and two of my sons standing there, maskless. And back into his pocket went the mask. Okay, that's the power of example right there. We didn't go there for the sole purpose of, you know, we're going to change people's minds and we're going to make a fierce stand for freedom. We just we just went there to take care of business. But by living up to those principles of freedom, it gave that individual, that one individual, that little extra boost of strength that you are not alone. And it, it really it made me happy to see him put his mask away. Maybe that's kind of a crazy thing to celebrate, but I, I thought it was a great example of how this works. Courage is contagious. Never forget that. All right, I'm going to shift gears one more time. There's one more thing I wanted to share with you, and this is, uh, this is a, a topic that I don't know if you've ever felt like less because you don't have lots of money. If you have felt that way, first of all, I want you to know you're not alone. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Take a deep breath and consider how you define wealth. There's a great website, frugalite.com, or The Frugalite. That's V-F-R-U-G-A-L-I-T-E, frugalite.com. Colette is, uh, is one of the contributors. I've, I've seen a couple of her articles. Really great stuff, but here is, uh, here is her take on wealth. She says, what is wealth? Let's face it, we live in a society where money matters a lot. Unfortunately, the value placed on wealth in North American culture means that money seems to become a yardstick to measure people's relative value. And that can lead to people who have less feeling like less. So she says, I want to offer some inspiration for folks like me who may have less cash but have lots of value. In this article, I provide an opportunity to consider exactly what wealth is and some different ways to think about it other than the worldly water we find ourselves swimming in. Given the times we live in, this is not an insignificant thing because challenging times or more challenging times may be ahead. So she starts with a bit of meditation. Now, don't roll your eyes until you've had a chance to hear her out. She says, think of it this way. Your problems might be like your hand. Look at your palm close to your face. Now, that's all you can see, right? It's huge. It blocks your view. Now, take a step backward. You see the sky, the horizon, maybe some trees, maybe the sun is shining. What size is your palm? Is it smaller? For the moment, perhaps it's a bit more manageable. And she says, look, I know this article can't take away serious money problems. I've been there. I've felt that pain. However, I'm trying to offer you a mental way to step back from that pain and to take a larger perspective. Meditation is something that I practice regularly, certainly not perfectly, but she says it does help me, and I hope it will offer something to you. 
So here she says, what is wealth in our world? In these days of the concentration of extreme wealth, so many people worldwide still go without. Even today, over 700 million people, that's about 10% of the total population of the world, live on less than $2 a day. Yes, indeed, this fact may not help you pay that utility bill that's a hardship this month. However, recognizing that you are fortunate in the global context could help you feel more grateful for the things you do have. She says, when considering the global context, it's helpful to consider relative poverty, which looks at people within a country and compares their relative wealth and absolute poverty, which compares everyone in the world across countries. So here are some numbers on relative poverty in America. In the U.S., 10.5% of the population, that's 34 million people, live in poverty as of 2019. For an individual in the U.S., the poverty line is $12,000 to $880 a year, or about $35.28 per day. Being poor in the American context or the Canadian context means going without and facing an enormous amount of hardship and unrelenting stress. But let's consider absolute poverty in the world context. And this is where it gets interesting. She says, beyond living on less than $2 a day, there are quality of life issues with absolute poverty, which means many basic needs are unavailable. Those challenges can include little access to food and basic nutrition, children dying young due to poverty-related factors, limited access to schooling or you can't attend as you must walk to get water for the family, hard-to-find fuel to cook for your family, no toilet or plumbing or outdoor toileting is contaminating the local water supply, little or no access to clean drinking water locally, no electricity, you're homeless or maybe living in a huge slum, you own little to nothing. Now she says, I know, people are questioning, well, how is this going to help me with my current struggles? You may be going through a difficult time thinking this, but this isn't really helpful. She says, I know that this perspective won't be convincing to everybody. That's okay. But I want to share one final statistic with you that got my attention. While the average person in the U.S. lives to be 78, the average person in sub-Saharan Africa lives to be 60. And that really sums up the effect of absolute poverty. And yes, certainly a 78 as an average, there would be effects to living in poverty in America, which I don't intend to minimize. But she says, if you consider the global context, if you are born in America, on average, you have an extra 18 years to live. What can you do with those 18 years? Can you learn something new? What can you do to enjoy those 18 years? Is there something you can accomplish in your retirement that's a dream you've always had? Being born in North America can be something that can allow us to connect with a feeling of gratitude and recognize that there are blessings in our lives in the global context. In fact, she says there are significant health benefits to simply feeling gratitude. Considering where you are in the larger world context might be one way to tap into the feeling of gratitude in your life. And she says, I use this gratitude as fuel to look around and find a way to make a difference. Next, she asks, what is wealth according to your values? With so much focus on the material wealth around us, it's really difficult to uh, oppose those feelings that uh, personal wealth is, uh, you know, how you define yourself. So where does money fit into that? What are the 10 most important things in your life? What and who can't you live without? Who are the people who've been there for you in difficult times? Who have you been able to help out yourself? She suggests take a few minutes and write this down and you won't regret it. Doing a personal inventory during a difficult time could help you see what you still have going for you, both in terms of personal qualities 
and the people in your life. Putting material wealth in its place in your life, she says, can help you live more contentedly through times where money is tight. And if you feel strong with setting priorities with your life, you can stand stronger against the bombardment by the advertisements that are trying to make you feel less than if you don't own this or that product. A final point she makes is that only you understand what wealth is according to your context. So society might look at your pocketbook and what you own and judge you. You know what you drive, right? That's where, that's where I feel it. Oh, boy, these rust spots on my car. Wow, they're really saying something about me that I don't want them to say. But she asks, do you have a disability, visible or invisible, that's created challenges in your life? Have you had to climb your own personal Everest just to get out of bed in the morning? She says, I face times of substantial disability in my life. Sometimes it's affected my ability to earn. But one of the biggest lessons I learned from this was to have the same compassion for myself that I like to offer others. Others can't see the mountain I climbed to get where I am, but I can take pride in my accomplishments and my ability to survive difficulty and thrive. I consider my strength and endurance to be a valuable kind of wealth. And I'm with her. I think maybe that's how we ought to start looking at uh, redefining our wealth. For me... How much time I get to spend with my kids is how I define my wealth. And in many ways, I'm a lot richer than I thought. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network.